So I want to tell you about one of the most frightening moments of my life. Can I tell you about one of the most frightening moments of my life? I love this day. Um, <laughs> the most frightening moments of my life happened after college when I was living in Japan for two years, and a group of us, about 10 of us, went to uh, Indonesia on a trip during our winter break. We got to go for a couple of weeks and visit a lot of different islands that were there, but because I'm old, uh, this was a time before cell phones and GPS, and you had to, like, these paper maps that you had to, like, figure out. And one day, we went to a, a more remote island in Indonesia uh, called Lombok. Uh, and while we were in Lombok, uh, we had two cars of us, and we were driving to different places and different beaches. But because we didn't have a GPS, uh, and we were not prepared because we were 23 and not thinking clearly, there was only one map for the group, and we had to get into different cars and drive. So what that meant is, is that the lead car had a paper map, and they were in charge of figuring out where to go. And we were in the car, the second car behind them, that had to keep up. Now, this one time we were driving, we were on a two-lane highway. So one lane going our direction, the other lane coming this way. And when you have two cars that are going somewhere, the lead car has to remember that there's a car following, right, and to not drive too fast. But for some reason, the guy driving the car that day uh, wasn't being very neighborly or nice. And so he got impatient, and he started passing cars on the highway, and we started getting further and further behind. That coincided with the driver of our car was a young woman named Heidi, who was wonderful, but was really nervous about driving in Indonesia. It was her first time, which is understandable. It was her first time. And so she was driving really slow. And we kept looking at her and going, like, Heidi, you've got to keep up. You've got to start passing these cars. She's like, I don't want to. I'm like, yeah, but you don't want us to get lost on this island without any knowledge of where to go. That's going to be worse. So you've got to go faster. So we worked out this system where she was in the driver's side, and there'd be a car or a truck in front of us, and she'd sort of try to look to see if it was clear. And I was in the passenger seat, and I'd try to look to see if it was clear, and then I'd be like, all right, I think we're clear. I think we're clear. And then she'd try to pass this, the truck in front of us, or car in front of us. Well, there's one moment we were behind a truck, and she's looking, and I'm looking, and she said, can I go? And I saw this gigantic truck coming down the other lane, coming towards us, and I said, no. And what she heard was, go. And so she spun the wheel out into the, the lane, and this gigantic truck is like right on top of us. And two things happened at that moment. The first is, all of us in our car screamed really, 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 really loud at a really high decibel. I was like a, I was like a, a third grader again, just like, you know, it was like just so frightened. And then the other thing that happened while I was shrieking was I started air driving. And if any of you have ever gone through driver's eds or your parents drive with you, you'll notice that in the moment they start turning an imaginary wheel in front of them when they're in the passenger seat. And that's what I did. I started air driving and doing this at an imaginary wheel to try to go back. And I was pressing an imaginary brake, which wouldn't actually have done anything, but it was just my body kind of doing this. And thankfully, Heidi was doing the same motion with the real steering wheel, and she swerved back into our lane. We almost flipped. We almost hit a car that had started coming up behind us in our lane, and we missed the truck in front of us by like two inches. It was one of those sort of fear things that the adrenaline's going through, and you're trembling afterwards at how close you just came to death, all because I said no, and what she heard was go. They sound a lot alike very different applications and meaning than what you're supposed to do. It's amazing how a subtle change in a word 
can change the meaning in all kinds of different ways. And I want you to remember that today as we read the scripture passage before us. I really chose this in the Luke series today, knowing that this was uh, Love Austin and knowing and trying to kind of hopefully round this weekend off for you guys. And so uh, I know you're tired, but stick with me as we go through this, uh, as we try to put a a kind of final exclamation point on this amazing weekend y'all have had, okay? This is a passage of scripture that's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's what loving and being a neighbor really looks like. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you need, what do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said this to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, whatever questions, whatever doubts, whatever dreams, whatever hopes, whatever opinions of you we have, I pray that your spirit would speak to us all, that we would hear the gospel this morning, the good news, and it would change us forever. We want nothing less than to be transformed. And we're confident that this can happen because of you. Be with us this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in this passage of scripture, uh, we're not going to be able to sum everything up. There are people who have done like month-long Bible studies on the Good Samaritan and don't cover any of it, and in one sermon we can't, and we're not going to try. But what I want us to do today in taking a particular uh, angle of this, I first want us to just acknowledge how well-known this term is, the Good Samaritan. It is known uh, by people who are Christians and not what it means to be a Good Samaritan, someone who helps. For example, in every state in our country, all 50 states, there's something called a Good Samaritan law, and that's what it's talked about. And that means that if you see someone who's in distress, you can go and help them without having to worry about would a lawsuit come back at you for what might happen. You are protected by a Good Samaritan law. Now, it's not just called a Good Samaritan law in the Bible Belt. It's also called the Good Samaritan law in Vermont and in Oregon and in places where hardly anybody goes to church. People know what the Good Samaritan is. They know it's about someone trying to help someone out where there is need. But there's some terms in here that to get to the application I want to make today, I need us to just be on the same page about some information, okay? Some of the terms that are here. The first thing, when Jesus is saying, who is my neighbor, and what's most important, he says that your neighbor can be defined by the story. He said that there's a person going on a route from a traveler from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jericho was like 18 miles east of Jerusalem, and on the path, on this 18-mile journey, it was a steady downhill journey into the desert, 
Okay, you descend about half a mile in elevation on the 18-mile journey. So it's downhill all the way. And there would be, because you're going down through hills, there were cliffs that were often on either side of you. And that made it a very dangerous place to travel. They called it at the time, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, the blood path. Because people were beaten up and robbed like we see in this story so often. Because robbers could hide in the cliffs until you were right on top of them. And then they would spring out and they could beat you up and then go out into the desert and no one would follow them. So they knew when Jesus hears, listen to this story, as soon as he said a traveler went from Jerusalem to Jericho, they would have been going, that's not good. That's not a place you want to go by yourself. Then he says that while this man has stripped of his clothes and while he has been stripped of his possessions and while he is lying, dying on the side of the road, three people pass him. The first is a priest. Now, a priest at the time, uh, and that term may be pretty familiar, but just so we're on the same page, a priest was the highest category that you could get to in Jewish society at the time. They worked in the temple system. They were the top of the top. They were the leaders. Nothing could happen in the temple system without them. And that meant that not only did they control religion, but they controlled um, uh, politics. They controlled the economy. They were in charge of all facets of life. These should have been the leaders, the few priests. And yet Jesus makes a very controversial statement when he says that the priest, this leader, this holiest of people, sees a man dying on the side of the road and doesn't stop but passes by on the other side. Moves away from him to the other side of the road and passes by. He says the second person to come is a Levite. Now what is a Levite? We've got to know that term. A Levite is also a holy position in the temple. It's not a priest, but it's like the rung just underneath a priest. But it was still an advantaged position in society, a holy person, a leader of the people. And once again, we see that this leader passes by on the other side. Why? Why do they pass by? Well, we don't know. Some scholars say that it's because if the man had been dead, that to touch a dead body would make both of these holy people unclean and they couldn't have done the job in Jericho they were going there to do. Some people have said that it might just be that they were scared that they were going to get beaten up uh, themselves because the robbers might still be close by. But for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't tell us these two holy people wander by on the other side of the road. But then a third person comes. And the third person is a Samaritan. And this is the last term that's really important we got to know. A Samaritan and the Jewish people were enemies of one another. The Samaritans were in an area just to the north of Jerusalem, this little area, and they were there, and they were very closely, in some ways, related uh, to Jewish people. Their culture, their religion was quite similar, but the differences were what the Jewish people and the Samaritans paid attention to. They hated each other. The Jewish people looked at Samaritans as impure, less than fully human. They were forgotten. They were kicked to the side. Good Jewish people did not want to go around them. And so not only does a priest pass by, not only does a Levite pass by, but then this Samaritan, the last person you would think would stop, and the last person you might want to stop, is the one who does stop. It says he binds up the wounds, what we might call here at Covenant, extravagant generosity, binds up the wounds of this traveler, forgets whatever he's going to Jericho to do. He's not going to be there to do that anymore. His, 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 his to-do list is shot. He then takes him and puts him on his animal, and he walks the rest of the way to Jericho, in danger himself if other robbers were there, but he does it anyway. He gets to an inn. He pays the, uh, for a room. He starts to stay overnight and to work for the healing of this traveler, and then he pays the innkeeper in advance for further treatment. And then on top of that says, and if I come back and it costs any more, I will pay that. This unbelievable response. Now, that's all the stuff we need to know to understand the angle I want to take at this. 
The angle I want to take at this is getting to what I think is the most obvious response to this. What are we supposed to do with this? What does it mean? And I think the obvious response, while there are many, is that you and I are supposed to be like the Samaritan. That's what hopefully you were doing this weekend, right? You want to go out into the city and care and love and show the love of God to people where there is hurt and where there is brokenness. The obvious thing in this is that we listen to it and we go, man, the the priest and the Levite are bad and the Samaritan is good and I want to be more like the Samaritan and not like the priest or the Levite. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the Samaritan this week because I care for people and I want to help people. That is a great sentiment, but the fact is, is that while we believe it right now, most of us this week won't do it. The parable of the Good Samaritan has been told for thousands of years. We're no closer to living it out than we were 2,000 years ago. Knowledge is not the problem with this. There was a famous study, and, and it's been talked about here at Covenant before, so I'm not going to go all into the details of it, uh, but it's, it's kind of a cruel study. It, it's, it's kind of mean, because uh, it was done to a, a series of seminary students who were training to be ministers. Uh, all, uh, all three of us, me, John, and Jill, have all talked about this example, so you've heard it before. But the, 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 the broad overview of it is that they took these students planning for the ministry, and they said, you are going to be given a great honor. You are going to give a lecture on this passage, the Good Samaritan. You're going to teach some really important people about that. And so we want you to go and to to prepare and to get ready. And next week, show up at this spot to give this lecture. So the students all showed up. They had prepared. They had been given this great honor. You can imagine. They're like, man, I'm going to show them I'm somebody. I'm going to get a job out of this. They show up, and that's when the experiment started. Then they had a person who was there who met them like, oh, my gosh, you're in the wrong place. The lecture's not here. The lecture's on the other side of campus, and you need to get there fast because all of these important people are waiting for you. And that was where the experiment started. Because then one at a time, the students start making their way across campus, nervous that they're going to miss it. This is their big opportunity. It's going to go away. And the experimenters, the, the people leading the study, they paid an actor to collapse on the path in front of the students who were going to give a lecture on being the Good Samaritan to see what these students would do. And what they found is almost none of them stopped. They walked around the person. They got off of the path. Some of them stepped over the person who had collapsed in front of them, and they kept going to go. It's not about information. It takes something more than just going, this week I'm going to be the good Samaritan, because no matter how much we feel it right now, that doesn't mean we will do it. The difference in the responses here is deeper than just be the Samaritan and don't be the priest or Levite. And the difference to me comes down to two words. Two words that sound a lot alike, kind of like no and go, but have really different meanings. And the two words are sympathy and empathy. Sympathy and empathy. I want you to say those with me. Sympathy, sympathy, and empathy. Empathy. Brene Brown defines sympathy as when you see someone who's hurting and you're like, oh, that is so sad. That breaks my heart. Someone should do something about it. I'm going to pray for that person. Let's give a little bit to that person to help them out. She said that that is a natural response when we see people, when we see children in Haiti. It's like, oh, that just breaks my heart. So we should give something. We should do, we should do something for them. Sympathy is a natural response, but what happens in the problem, she says, with sympathy is it doesn't unite us. It keeps us apart because I stay here going, oh, that's so sad where you are. That must be so hard over there, what it's like for you. 
but I heart breaks for you. Empathy, Brene Brown says, is the ability to stop and place yourself in the shoes of the other. And to live in that place. To tap in to something in you that connects so that you stop in that place and see life from their perspective for a long time. Sympathy is, oh, that's too bad, I'll pray for you. Empathy is to stop and to place yourself there. And it has all kinds of consequences. There are all kinds of consequences to whether we react with sympathy or empathy. It makes a difference if you're a teacher. If you're a teacher and you show empathy to your students, there's signs of what will happen. It, there'll be more of a response among students. It's, um, it, it's for doctors with patients. Doctors who are more empathetic, their patients will often respond quicker and faster to what's being recommended of them than just sympathy. But one of my favorite examples comes with how you and I respond with sympathy or empathy when it comes to our finances, our money. I had heard this was true. I had read this was true before, but I didn't want to say something to you that was untrue because I know that several of you will research and write me long emails with why it's not true. So I, I, I wanted to verify whether this was true. And so I um, spoke to a, someone I'm very close with this week to say, hey, I've heard this. I want to know if it's true. This person's an expert on how people handle money. He is the director of global ph philanthropy for an international nonprofit. This is his world of how people give. And what I asked him is, what I said, what I heard is, I said, I've heard that in our country that poorer people give away a higher percentage of their money to others in need than wealthier people do. Is that true? He said, it is absolutely true. It is not just true in this country, it is true in most countries around the world. It's not that they give more total money because wealthier people have more money, and so what they give is higher amounts, but it's less sacrificial that the people in the bottom 10% of wealth assets in our country give as much or more of a percentage of what they have than any other category in our country, and it has been that way for decades, even though they have less to do with. And the reason when I ask why is because of the difference in those two words. Because a poorer person, when someone says, I need help, can more empathize with that because it's like, I know what it's like to need help help. I can empathize and place myself there going, oh, you do. Oh, you do need help. Let's help them while we're here. The temptation is to look at this and to say, don't be like the priest or the Levite who passed by because they're bad. Be like the Samaritan because he's good and live like that. What if that's not the story? What if the priest and the Levite maybe even responded by feeling sympathetic, but the Samaritan responded with empathy? Because the Samaritan knows what it's like to feel beaten up and left out and lonely and forgotten about and passed by by the respectable people in society because that's what life as a Samaritan is like every day. The good news is Brene Brown says that empathy isn't just something you're born with, but it's something you can cultivate in your life. My hope for you ending Love Austin is going to go, I'm just going to keep helping people. That's sympathy. My hope 
is that we will learn to empathize. And the ways that she says we learn to empathize can come straight from this text. And this is the application. And this is what I want you to think about this week. The answer to this passage is not, I'm going to be the Samaritan and really good. In fact, this week, I want to tell you not to try to be the Samaritan. I want you to not leave here remembering that you're supposed to be the Samaritan. I want you to remember when you've been the traveler. I want you to not leave here remembering that you're supposed to be the Samaritan, remembering a rule that I'm going to help people. I want you this week to remember when you've been the traveler, when you felt left out, beaten up, in pain, forgotten about, left on the side of the road, passed by while others get to go do the great and the fun and the important things around you. I want you to think about those moments and those stories which all of us have, which most of us push away because we don't look the best in them and they're not the best memories all the time. And as you think about it, I want you to think about who are the good Samaritans that God has sent to you? How did God's grace shine down upon you when you were the traveler? And that if we sit in those stories, we can be shaped and formed to respond with empathy because we can place ourselves there versus sympathy. One of the reasons I have, I believe, the coolest job in the world being a pastor is because every once in a while, I get to wrestle with a scripture passage like this, and then the things going on in my life in the week sort of co-connect, and like these light bulb moments happen. That doesn't happen every week. It doesn't even happen most weeks, but this week it did happen. This week, as I was thinking about this passage and thinking about how we respond with empathy versus sympathy, uh, I traveled this week, and I went to a meeting uh, in Atlanta for a board that I sit on. Uh, It's a board that works with uh, leadership development and pastors all around this country in all different denominations, and I love being a part of it. It's just a great thing for me to get to go and do. I learn a ton from it. Uh, It's a wonderful experience. But the board is chaired by a gentleman whose name may be familiar to many of you. Uh, His name is Daryl Guter. Uh, Dr. Guter has preached here at Covenant a few years ago. Uh, If the language that you've heard that captured so many of us of Covenant is supposed to be a love letter from God to the city of Austin, Dr. Guter was the one who came here and talked to us about that, that language that captured so many of us of thinking outside of our walls. He's taught for years at Princeton Seminary. Before that, he taught at Columbia Seminary, where Beth and I both went, and that's where I got to know him. Now, when he came here, I introduced him as a mentor of mine, which he is. That is true. But when I think of a mentor, I think about someone that like, embodies this wonderful standard. It's like, oh, I want to get tidbits from them and act like them and learn from them so I can become like that. Th- that's not who Dr. Guter is for me. The full story that I got to sit with being with him again this week and being reminded of is that Dr. Guter was a man who bound up my wounds. When I first met Dr. Guter, it was in my first semester of seminary. And my first semester of seminary was a really difficult one for me because I was dealing with a lot of changes in my life. Uh, Where faith had become real to me was in Japan, where I had lived for two years after college, like I said. And I had come to faith in this little Japanese house church in rural Japan run by two Norwegian missionaries. And my plan after Japan was I was going to go get my master's degree and doctorate in philosophy. That was what my undergraduate degree was in. But after coming to faith as a Christian, I thought, well, maybe I want to check out more about Christianity and learn more about this, and I'm going to trek out seminary, and I don't know if God's calling me to uh, be a pastor or a leader in the church, but I want to maybe see what that is. And so uh, after two years in Japan, I left and came back to the only seminary in the world I knew. It was in the city I grew up in, in Atlanta. I didn't know anything else about it, and I went through a lot of changes in that. 
I, I went with the reverse culture shock, which was really hard of two years in rural Japan and coming back to an urban environment. And that culture shock was really hard and disorienting for me and really confusing. I had to go and realize that a house church in rural Japan run by Norwegian missionaries is really different from a denominational seminary in the South in the United States. And I had all these people that were all psyched up about you know, being a pastor because their dad was a pastor, their granddad was a pastor, and their great uncle was a pastor, and their great aunt is a pastor, and their great grandfather was a pastor and they just love denominations and everything else. And I'm like, I don't even know what any of this is. I don't know what I'm doing here. We were in our first year of marriage. I was married to a woman I met in Japan, a wonderful young woman from Wales. But the first year of marriage, you're trying to figure a lot of stuff out. And not only were we trying to figure out marriage, but we came back to the States and her visa wasn't through to come here. So she had to go live in, in Great Britain. And, and I was living in the States and we're trying to figure out marriage that way. And I was really lonely without her. But we was, I kept messing up as a husband when I was with her. And and so it was like, you know, I'm trying to learn what this means, and yet I miss her, and then, you know, all this kind of stuff, and I'm trying to figure out what school is like, and I'm trying to figure out what church is like, and, and in the end, I was lonely, and I was hurting, and I was confused, and so my plan was to drop out of seminary, and to find a way to go back to get my philosophy degree, because obviously I had missed what I was supposed to do with my life. And one day in class, on a Tuesday afternoon, a man gave a lecture named Daryl Guter. And it was a lecture that touched me very powerfully. And so I went up to him afterwards and all of my loneliness and all of my pain and all of my questions and all of my sadness and all of my missing my wife and, and all of this stuff and all of my not understanding why I was here. And you know when you're in that place of hurt and you don't care that other people are around? And like I just said thank you for that lecture because I'm going through a hard time. And I teared up and there's like other students walking around and he's there. And I'm like I'm going through this and I'm lonely and my wife's in a different country and I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a good husband and I'm trying to figure out what it means to, to go to church here but I don't understand the churches here and I don't understand these other students that are here who have always known they were going to be a, a pastor since they were three days old and I don't understand like any of this world and I'm just lost and I'm sad and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a car. I can't get around anywhere. And he said, he said, who are you again? <laughs> he said, what is your name? I said, my name is Thomas Daniel. And he said, well, Thomas Daniel, I have somewhere I need to be right now. Um, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I said, I don't know if I mentioned I was lonely. I don't have anything to do tomorrow morning. I don't have anyone to be with. And he said, well, why don't you walk, because you don't have a car, to my house? And I live three blocks from campus, and why don't you come to my house and have breakfast with me? And let's talk about what's going on. And the next morning, I walked to his house on Wednesday morning, and I went in, and his wife, Judy, was upstairs, and we sat in his basement. I'll never forget, he had a stack of English muffins and, uh, and two glasses of tea, and we talked, and I cried, and he then talked to me, and then he prayed for me, and I never had someone do that. I never had a situation where someone just laid their hand on my head and prayed for me with what was going on, and when we finished and we were there for two hours, I looked at him, and I said, thank you, and he said, what are you doing next Wednesday for breakfast? I said, I don't mention if I'm lonely, but I got nothing to do like tomorrow or Friday or Saturday or Sunday. He's like, well, keep those to yourself. What are you doing next Wednesday morning for breakfast? Why don't you come back and we'll do it again? And for the next three years, I would walk to Dr. Guter's house to have breakfast and to talk about life and to talk about ministry and marriage and to pray for each other. He's not a mentor to me. He bound up my wounds. And if I want to live like the Samaritan this week, 
I need to hold on to that story. It's not about me remembering to be the Samaritan. It's about me remembering when I was the traveler. And as you sit in those stories, it forms you and it shapes you to respond with empathy and to place yourself in that position because you can get there rather than sympathy, which says that is just too bad. And I'll be thinking and praying for you from over here. Friends, this day, this week, I want to invite you not to be the Samaritan because you work at it. I want to invite you to remember when you're the traveler. Because maybe, just maybe, this week, you are going to run into all kinds of people who are hurting, who are broken, who are lonely, who are sad. Wherever you live, work, and play. And maybe, just wait, maybe, if we hold on to these stories where we've been the traveler and let it shape us, we can respond with empathy rather than sympathy. Maybe, just maybe, this week, we could actually be the Good Samaritan. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that for each of us this week, we would remember our stories. Remember when we have been forgotten and lonely. Remember how you have, through your grace, sent people and Samaritans to us. How they have loved us and shaped us and bound up our wounds. And that we would be molded by these stories to become people who respond to the needs around us, like the Samaritan, empathetically. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.